Thank you to the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto and Professor Marcus Dubber for um, organizing this session today. Um, my name is Amna Akbar. I'm a professor of law at the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. And it's my extraordinarily, extraordinary privilege to be in conversation today with Rachel Hertzing, who's one of the co-founders of Critical Resistance and the executive director of the Center for Political Education in the Bay um, that does political education and support for today's left social movements and organizers. Um, so today, Rachel and I are going to be talking about um, prison industrial complex abolition and kind of the moment that we're in. Um, we agree to have the conversation within the framework of prison industrial complex abolition. We're living in a moment where there's a lot of talk of um, police abolition, a lot of thinking and exciting organizing and wins along the dimension of police abolition. Um, but we thought it would be useful to kind of put the frame for today's conversation to be about prison industrial complex abolition, um, which offers a expansive kind of way to think about the connected systems and in the language of critical resistance, the connected systems of government and industry that use surveillance, policing and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social and political problems. So we can think together about prisons, police and surveillance abolition under the banner of prison industrial complex abolition. Um, and there've been so many exciting webinars and there's so many new and old materials, whether um, it's critical resistances, organizing, materials, Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete with Wilson Gilmore's Golden Gulag and all of the webinars that have been organized in the last several weeks. So there's kind of so much out there right now, kind of thinking and talking about what is prison and police abolition, what is PIC abolition. Um, and we're gonna try to think a little bit about the moment we're in now, how we might get ready for this moment, the questions about reform and more. Um, and so briefly, just to kind of put out a vision of PIC abolition, again, drawing from critical resistance, um, and all these materials are available on their website. Um, CR defines prison abolition as a political vision for society without prisons and police that doesn't need prisons and police because people's basic needs and more are met. Um, and that we have tools other than violence, prisons and police to respond to interpersonal harm and socioeconomic political conflict and struggle. So it's as much about what we are building as what we are deconstructing and taking down. And it provides a broad vision, a broad and deep um, and historically situated vision, um, as well as a daily practice and a framework for organizing. Um, was there anything that you would add or shift, Rachel? Oh, that was great, Amna. Okay. Um, so, we're going to have a conversation today and kind of some of these conversations, some of the questions and conversation we're going to have is going to build on conversations I have been having with Rachel and that we have been having with each other. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when the rebellions um, started across the country after the Minneapolis police killed George Floyd, um, we were, I was, we were having a conversation of kind of about the state of organizing in the country. Um, and Rachel, you made this comment to me about, um, you know, like you, you pose this question about whether we are ready for this political moment that's offering in which defund and abolition are taking up so much space um, and what it mean, what it might mean to get ready. So I was hoping we would kind of just start right there. Like, do you think we are ready to the extent that we're not ready? What, what, does it, what would it mean? What does it look like to get ready? 
um, for the kind of opening that we are in right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. It's a hard one. <laughs> And um, I can't say that my thinking has advanced a ton since the last time we discussed it, but I think we are both more ready than we've ever been and um, not at all ready. And so by that, I guess I mean that I've been really stunned to see the traction that um, very far reaching demands on the prison industrial complex have been able to have, right? So that the conversation begins in Minneapolis at defund the police rather than we want more training or we want accountability or we want cops that look like us or who live in our neighborhoods or the variety of kinds of things that um, for many, many years have been offered as the first kind of set of um, remedies. So the fact that defund comes out, you know, as the kind of big protest demand out of this period, I think one speaks to a lot of years of organizing and a lot of political education, which demonstrates a different level of readiness than we may have had in 2014, for instance. Um, and I think the kind of um, strength and again, to use Minneapolis just as one example, but the strength of the organizers and the organizations there that and the preparation that they had to not only make the claim, you know, we think we should defund the police and, and demand that of their city, but to go a step further and say, actually, we want to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and to get their city council to take that seriously, suggests to me again that we're more ready movement-wise than we've been in a long time. At the same time, I am not 100% convinced that we are as ready as we may need to be. And I don't mean that to say that um, the goal of dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department or demanding the abolition of policing is too far a reaching demand to make and that we're not ready to kind of move in that direction. I think what I mean when I say that is more that um, there's not exactly a unity of purpose around demands around defund or dismantle the police at this point. So you have, in many cases, liberals um, kind of, as I've said, choosing their own adventure around the defund demand, right? So it's like, oh, well, what they actually mean by that is we could take you know, the example I've been using is one half of 1% away from the cops and we've met that defund demand, right? And then you have other people who are saying, well, it's not a true defund demand unless it's attached to this kind of broader reaching goal of eroding the power of policing um, towards something that gives communities more life-affirming programs and services and policies. Um, so I think there's that part that there still is a little bit more um, political coherence that I think is necessary for the um, period that we're in to do the best work it could do. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are up for that, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. And then I guess the other thing I would say is that I'm not sure that we're properly prepared for the backlash that we will no doubt um, experience. And I think we have seen um, some amount of that already in the protests that have been happening. There's been, you know, response by the cops. There's also been response by, 
you know, non-state actors, white supremacists, et cetera, who are trying to be disruptive and harmful in those spaces, who are doing that same work online that they generally do to sow some amount of chaos and disruption. Um, and I do think that we need to take very seriously movement history that demonstrates to us that the greater demands and the greater pressure that's put on the state, the higher level of repression that the people making those demands tend to face. So I don't think anybody should be mistaken. I don't know that anybody is, but just to say it, I don't think anybody should be mistaken that the cops are gonna go down without a fight. The cops are absolutely not gonna go down without a fight. And I don't just mean that their unions will blow a bunch of hot air. I think we will see um, whole police forces and members of police forces act back. Um, and so I think we'll see it, you know, in the form of the, their bodies that have power, but I think we'll also see that in some level of individual action or collective action um, that is state sanctioned or that is not state sanctioned, but still happens. So I don't know. I mean, that's not a great answer to your question, <laughs> but I do think that, um, you know, there, it is both and, I feel both and right now. I feel like we are both more ready and not 100% prepared. And I'm not sure we could be 100% prepared, which is why I said earlier, I don't think it's too big a demand to be making right now. But it does make me think of a question that I have for you, okay. which is um, around this question of reform, right? So, um, you know, there's some amount of back and forth, I think that happens in our movements around um, what counts as abolition, what counts as reform and how rigid we wanna be around, um, you know, that, those lines. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, in a period where there's a greater refusal around language of reform, what you see as the kind of benefits and drawbacks or the openings or challenges um, of being in a period when that's being debated maybe more rigorously than it has been for a while. Yeah, I mean, I have to say as a lawyer and a law professor um, and as someone who supports abolition and left social movements um, who are looking for to transform the country and the world, um, this question seems super ripe and super rich in a way that it has never been in my life um, to actually think about demands and uh, law reforms that could uh, usher in really deep transformation um, is a really important question and an exciting one right now. And I think on the one hand, you know, historically the question of reform, at least for the left has been in this kind of conversation around reform versus revolution, right? Like what are the tools that we have to usher in revolutionary or transformational change? Um, and one of the things that we are seeing now across the country, whether it's about no new jails or defund the police or the Green New Deal or Medicare for all is kind of, um, you know, putting forward these demands that some are straightforwardly law reform demands and some are arguably, uh, you know, reform demands of some sort, um, kind of being put forward as an organizing strategy, right? To put forward an alternative vision of how we might relate to each other, what we might expect um, from the government um, and so on. And so we are seeing in exciting ways, I think the way that reform related demands can be a form of an organizing strategy. 
um, whether or not the kind of abolitionist demands or the anti-capitalist demands that are being made are properly thought of as a reform or not, I think is a hard question. Um, one thing that I've heard and read you say over the years is that you know a reform is just a change. And so normatively, you know, living in a liberal discursive universe, we hear the word reform and we think, oh, that means it's something good. But of course, one thing we've learned from abolitionist thinking and organizing and just studying the history of the country is a lot of the reforms when it comes to prisons and police have just meant the scaling up of the systems and their kind of ability to retool and be more sophisticated and how they impart and enact violence on um, people. Um, but is it possible to kind of make demands that gesture um, and help us to build a different kind of world. Um, there are different kind of frames for thinking about this, um, right? So there's the abolitionist kind of frame, sometimes, in, for example, in the recent chart that CR Critical Resistance released a year or so ago, it's abolitionist steps versus reformist reforms. Um, there's the non-reformist reforms versus reforms. There's the transitional demands kind of frame. So in the history of the left, including now, people kind of have bandied around different kinds of terms around how to think about how to make demands and push for reforms that actually usher in transformation and don't seem simply like a form of tinkering or re-legitimation. Um, and so generally speaking, I think when people are thinking about that, they're thinking about what are demands that we can make that make um, it more difficult for the prevailing order to reproduce itself and make a fundamentally different order feel within reach. Um, and it's not just a matter of kind of like ideological world building. It's also about, um, you know, kind of um, what those demands materially will offer people. So you can think about, for example, cancel rent and the kind of proliferation of that demand in the face of COVID-19. Um, and that's not just pushing this idea that housing could be decommodified that we could all kind of have what we're entitled to in that sense, but it's also um, offer, you know, it's being articulated in this way. It's like, oh, you have to pay rent every month. What if you didn't have to pay rent every month? Wouldn't that be a better world to live in? Um, and so part of it is about that. And the other thing that I think is really important, especially for now, um, since we're living in a moment where our movements are expanding and organizing expanding rapidly around abolition is that the demands come from organizing the grassroots and directly impacted people and create space for greater kind of democratic engagement, right? So if you go back as far as the non-reformist reforms framework that this French socialist guy Andre Gores offered a couple decades ago or four or five decades ago now, um, one of the things he talks about is, you know, like the non-reformist reform needs to give the working class more power to exercise their power over their labor, their workplace in the world going forward because Part of the reason why that's so important is because we know that no one reform is gonna usher in deep transformation, a redistribution of wealth and power. And so it has to be that a key kind of work that these non-reformist reforms or abolitionist steps are doing um, are not simply breaking down the prevailing order, gesturing towards another, offering material relief, but coming from a greater exercise of kind of like democratic and mass engagement and creating more space for that. Um, and so, of course, like, you know, in terms of the abolitionist frameworks, um, there's, a, you know, the common framework is something about, you know, like shrinking power, budgets, resources, and staff. Um, one thing we've learned from all the campaigns around the country, like No Cop Academy or No New Jails, is this idea of no new technology or infrastructure is like a basic kind of abolitionist frame. 
One thing I've learned a lot from these frames um, as someone who's kind of embedded in the world of law often um, is that like the ideological work that reforms do, which I talked about briefly, but it's not just about what are you asking for, um, but what are the stories you're telling? So like the difference between defund as a liberal demand and defund as an abolitionist demand is very much about um, are you, you know, the abolitionist kind of defund demand is partly to fundamentally question and undermine the claim that police produce public safety uh, versus a basic half percent defund demand in the way that you were gesturing at is about a little bit of budget reallocation to kind of make things whole again. Um, and so, I mean, I have a lot more to say and think about this, but I'm just, I would be curious, I'm gonna pause just like, what do you, what do you think? I mean, how are you thinking about, how are you thinking about this moment and this question of reform um, and whether or not the language of whether we call reforms or not matters. Because sometimes, I, I mean, I will often use the word like non-reformist reforms or like some form, I will use the term reform to talk about sometimes a campaign like No New Jails or No Cop Academy. And then sometimes I get pushed in particular by um, younger people that, you know, I'm kind of conceding too much by calling it a reform and I'm not talking about reform, I'm talking about something else. Um, and it feels a little bit like a tension there in terms of, especially because I've learned so much from studying abolitionist, um, you know, writing and campaigns that language really matters. Um, so is it important to kind of get at a different framework or, you know, is this kind of like a, uh, uh, a kind of tension that we just have to live with? Yeah, I do believe that language matters. I believe language matters a lot. Um, and in this case, I think I'm much more concerned about what we advocate for than what we call it. <clears throat> so, um, and I take the point, you know, around like the No Cop Academy, for instance, um, being pretty clear that what it's angling toward is the eventual abolition of policing in Chicago, right? And so we don't wanna undermine what they're trying to advance by using language that might do that. At the same time, um, whether or not they are able to stop this new thing from happening is dramatically more important to me than whether or not somebody calls it a reform or somebody calls it an abolitionist campaign. Um, and I also think that at the same time, I don't want to be too flip about that because I do think it matters that we say abolition out loud and that we talk about abolitionist campaigning as if it is practical, as if it is commonsensical. Um, and I think, you know, over the past 20 years, for instance, we've seen a big shift and people being willing to identify work as abolitionist work, all the way to people wanting to kind of claim an abolitionist identity, right? That's a little bit more mysterious to me why there's an attachment to that. But um, I think, you know, that seems to be a bit of a generational thing too, where there's more, um, it signals a certain kind of politics, I think, to people, um, which to my mind is great. And it means we win, right? Like if we, if we win, that it is a normal, practical, um, desirable thing to be associated with these politics then that's an advance for us. That's not the win, but that's an advance, I think. So, you know, again, I'm giving you like a double-sided answer, which is, which is yes and no. Um, I think we, we really cannot get too caught up in 
thinking that um, whatever narrative gains are wins. I'm not sure I think they are. I think, you know, they might open up a little bit of space for us, but say, you know, getting somebody to call something an abolitionist campaign versus a reformist campaign is not the same to me as like preventing a jail from being built or getting people out of cages or preventing cops from being able to, you know, enact their violence on people. And that's kind of where my measuring stick is, I think a bit more. Yeah, and I think one of the, you know, opportunities and challenges of the moment now is precisely given the new traction of defund and abolition, um, so much so that you have many liberals for the first time really grappling with abolition and the claim of defund or shrinking the footprint of police um, that, you know, trying to fix, you know, like that's the space in a way, right? That, that's, that's emerging right now. It's not simply because we have many more people organizing around abolitionist frames and many more people kind of, you know, kind of, you know, engaging in um, and actively supporting abolitionist campaigns. It's like when you look sometimes at those organizing trainings that people do where they show the range of like active support to, you know, neutral people and then active opposition, you know, part of what has happened is not just that you have active support for defund and abolition in a way that is really amazing, surprising, builds on all this organizing for decades, but also that, you know, kind of the passive support or neutral people have also shifted and then how to kind of build, um, build, continue to build, right? With that momentum to shift more people while we're kind of enacting and winning. Um, I mean, this was like a big shift for me, I would have to say as a lawyer that, um, kind of grew up in the 90s and 2000s and the left then, and then started working more with organizers once I moved to Ohio, um, of like the importance of claiming wins for our movements as a way to kind of grow them and attract new people. Um, and so thinking about what are the wins, um, celebrating the wins and being real about how much further the work has to go seems like really important and thinking about all of these questions. Mm -hmm. And doing that in an ethical way, right? So not claiming wins that aren't actually wins, not right. claiming wins that are somebody else's wins, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think that stuff is really, really important. I mean, I guess one of the other things that since you raised lawyering, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk about is the role for lawyers in um, fighting for the abolition of the prison industrial complex. So I know, for instance, that you have done a lot of work with Law for Black Lives, which has put a, a whole lot of effort into training lawyers in um, movement lawyering, but also to with a frame toward the abolition of the prison industrial complex. And I know, you know, on this question of reform to revolution, there are, you know, some people who say that those two things are not compatible, right, that using the law um, and fighting for its abolition are incompatible. I just wonder what you think about that from the position of a lawyer and, and somebody who teaches law. Yeah, I mean, I think one really profound thing, um, that shift that has happened, I think in the last decade, um, is that you have a lot of, relatively speaking, a lot of lawyers and even legal organizations that are trying to, even before a month ago, uh, trying to work alongside abolitionist campaigns 
um, and demands to make them a reality across the country. So you have like Amanda Alexander in the Detroit Justice Center, Blake Strode with Art City Defenders, abolitionist in Amistad Law Centers, um, you know, Dean Spade obviously has been thinking and talking about abolition and reform for a long time, Derricka Purnell's Community Justice Project, um, and there are many more, but there's like a growing number of lawyers and legal organizations that are working alongside abolitionist campaigns and organizations and building abolitionist organizations, legal organizations in a way that's really exciting. Um, you know, when you talk about movement lawyering, um, that is, you know, like that frame and that practice is something that, um, you know, in many ways is like simpatico with abolition and that in some sense it's fundamentally incompatible with the world that we live in, right? Because lawyers are very much trained to, in a sense, work as um, technocrats or bureaucrats in the system as it is and to help it function better um, and to not really think about what they do as political or as about reflecting any prevailing values, but to just think it's like a neutral service that you offer whoever is willing to pay or can pay your salary. Um, and to the extent that we think of or imagine law as a liberatory tool in the liberal imagination, it's very much about wins that you can get through court and through fighting for individual rights. And of course, the way that we, um, you know, the way that mainstream kind of public and higher education um, imagine and flatten the legacy of the civil rights movement is central to that kind of narrative. Um, and so the question of like movement lawyering is very much a question of like, how do lawyers work with social movements um, to support the power of everyday people to transform society, which is fundamentally in contradiction, I would say, with mainstream models of lawyering, public interest lawyering, social justice lawyering, even um, that's shifting, right? Like just, you know, like Movement Law Lab, which is an organization that works to build capacity for today's movements and movement lawyers, just announced a five-part course that they're offering on movement lawyering this summer. And I think within 36 hours, 1500 people had signed up, right? And so there's just like in every other sector, there's kind of a thirst for people right now, including among lawyers and young lawyers in particular and law students, how do we exercise the skills and the education um, that we have and our relationships with other people and resources to really transform the country as opposed to, um, you know, just kind of work as um, technocrats. And so um, I think for me, part of the reason why movement lawyering and abolition has been really um, transformative um, is because it gives you a very different way to think about what you're doing, um, right? And so, um, so to and so to the extent that there's like a you know kind of like a negative or defensive project in at play, right? So fighting against prisons and police, um, that is kind of, um, you know, that's a kind of work that lawyers are used to, right? So the vast majority of like public interest lawyers work at legal aid or public defender organizations. And so there you're offering your services typically to an individual person against the state exercising its coercive power against you or against a landlord trying to evict you. And so you're in this kind of de defensive posture. Let's not let this thing happen. Um, and so that kind of mode of lawyering, I think is fairly common, common in a sense, um, at least on behalf of an individual person. But part of what movements offer and part of what abolition offers is not just kind of an idea or like an ethical framework for thinking about why we should stand in solidarity with other people and fight against the oppressive forces that keep our society as mangled as it is, 
but also provide a vision of what are we actually fighting for? Okay, we don't want people to be evicted. We don't want people in cages. We don't want people subject to police violence. Um, but what is it that we're fighting for? That question, when you're stuck in the liberal imagination of law, is um, impossible to kind of suss out. And if you can, it's only like maybe six inches in front of your nose, right? Like we're fighting for like a small little tweak that's not very inspiring. It doesn't resonate with what we know that people need, what we need. And so the, um, that, you know, that kind of radical imagination of social movements, of abolition, um, and I would say not just in terms of like it offering a horizon to fight towards, but also the history that it roots you in as well, I think really uh, important because so much of lawyering and law and liberalism is very much about obscuring the history of enslavement, colonialism, making it seem like now is everything there ever is and has been and was and there's not, and there's also a total erasure of the history of collective resistance or mass social movement. So it's not, the fact that our social arrangements are the product of contestation between social forces that's ongoing and never relenting, um, you know, gets completely obscured. And so kind of investing you in a history and a future of collective struggle is what I think these frameworks offer in a way that lawyers are engaged in now, I would say more than ever since I've been alive, um, or at least conscious of what's happening in the world of lawyers. Um, and so this question then of like reform versus revolution um, and how lawyers can kind of support um, today's social movements in building that other world, I think is really ripe. And I don't have any you know, like particular answers myself, but I think as we have more people kind of engaging in these questions, we'll have better and better answers and better and better questions. Um, let me, uh, is, do you wanna to react to that or should I ask you a different question? I, f I feel like you did that excellently. So I don't think I have anything else to say about that. That was fantastic. Okay. All right. So I had um, often in my life, Rachel will say these things and then I end up thinking about them for a really long time, sometimes for years. Um, and so one thing I thought that would be awesome we could do is like, you just said something on a webinar, the eight to abolition webinar, like, I don't know, five days ago or something that was mysterious and thought provoking to me and got my heart racing in an excited way. And I wanted to ask you about it is on that webinar, you said, we are winning. Um, and for someone as grounded in the history of our movements and in abolition um, and the history of our country as you are, I found that to be completely thrilling, uh, but you didn't elaborate on it. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about what you had in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, I started talking about this a little bit earlier in our conversation too. I, I think where our politics are today, like where the core, the kind of fundamental demands start is a, is a political advance. And I, I consider that a win. I consider that a win for our movements um, because it means that we've put in the work to think about our movement history, to talk to each other, to congeal our politics, to really understand the terrain that we're in um, and to understand the forces that we're up against and what is required of us, what kinds of demands are required for of us to get us closer to the vision that we have. So that is a big deal to me. I think we're also seeing in this period, um, you know, we're coming off a series of, um, I think really exciting wins around um, the prevention of construction of new jails and prisons. 
So, you know, there's uh, a big win up in uh, Appalachia around the prevention and construction of USP Letcher, I think is what it was supposed to be called, federal prison up there in an area where they stay fighting prisons and they give prison builders hell. Um, we've seen in the state of California where I live, two big wins recently. We saw um, after, God, almost 15 years of organizing, a fairly definitive win in Los Angeles County against a new jail being built down there. Um, and we saw uh, what I would call a second win here in the San Francisco Bay Area in which uh, the county of San Francisco was prevented from building um, a new jail, a replacement jail. And um, then they just got the jail that they wanted to replace closed. So, you know, those are, those are big deals, right? And we're continuing to see those kind of site fights and those fights for decarceration to, to continue happening. Um, and that's a very long history, but those are, those are exciting things to me and I know they're not the only ones, right? And so even though, for instance, in New York, there wasn't a definitive win against Rikers. And then some people would say there was a defeat against Rikers with the kind of plan to build these four new jails. I also see some winning happening in there, right? Because the conversation is really different from you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago um, because the city of New York also wants to always be building new, new jails too, right? But the kind of kernel of the debate there and the traction that the abolitionists had in that debate, I think is an advance politically for us. Now, the other thing that I said the other day on this webinar is I don't wanna to get too far ahead of myself, right? Because I don't want to, us to have an outsized vision of how powerful we are or how prepared we are or um, you know, what ultimately those wins will mean for us. So I do you know, offer those with some bit of caution um, because I think we are still up against incredibly powerful forces and we still are pretty tiny and pretty weak in comparison to those forces. But at the same time, I think that we need to think about these as aggregate things that we can build on and that shift some of the logic of how we fight and, um, and what we fight for. And so to my mind in that, in that regard, we are winning and we're winning in a period that is a really weird time to be alive, right? <laughs> we're winning in a period when, you know, we're looking at really serious um, crisis around like health and well-being because of the pandemic. We're about to go into what looks like maybe the, you know, most serious depression the country's ever been into. And quite certainly we're gonna be looking at austerity blowback from that, looking at a lot of people out of work. We're looking at housing instability. We're looking at the United States continuing to make war around the world, even as things are in complete calamity here inside the country's borders. Um, and within that, and maybe because of that, you know, those conditions, we're able to see these wins around imprisonment, but we're also able to see, you know, the city of Minneapolis is taking steps, you know, to dismantle its police force. We are seeing, you know, um, recent wins around getting cops out of schools, right? So here where I live in Oakland, Black Organizing Project managed to get the Oakland Unified School District Police as its own police force, managed to get them um, out of Oakland schools. And that's again, I think like a 10 year campaign that they're able to kind of 
push over the edge right now. So I never want to act as if like there's a protest movement and then we win, right? A protest moment and then we win. I always want to make sure we're connecting that back to the long and arduous organizing that happens over, over you know, a period of time to create the conditions that make this kind of final push of pressure that we see through the protest, um, push it over the edge, right? So I, I'm also not gonna say that the protests don't matter. They absolutely matter, right? Without the kind of large scale and sustained protests that we see, you wouldn't, for instance, see Mississippi finally get its shit together to change its flag, right? And that's like symbolic victory, but that's also still a victory. And I think, you know, as I was saying before, I don't want us to claim victories that aren't real, you know, and I don't want us to claim other people's victories. But I think when we see places where we can wiggle in and make more space, we need to acknowledge those. We need to thank the people who made them possible and, and we need to then keep moving. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that. Do you not think that we're in a winning period? Do you have a different read on the period than I do? No, I feel pretty, I, I, I may have not got, gotten as far as saying we are winning, but that's mostly because I'm always questioning what I know and whether I know enough to think the things I think. And so like, I think hearing you say it um, makes me, you know, does give a kind of more concrete frame for my sense of like hopefulness coming out of this moment. But I also think the way that you're grounding us um, and like reminding you know just just the, of all of the kind of um suffering that's happening right now and all the pain and insecurity of um you know evictions that are starting to get filed as um courts are opening back up of course the pandemic is um proliferating so fast in jails and prisons which we already know to be unhealthful and violent places and more that you know that kind of dialectic between those things is a hard one that I think we have to kind of be humble in the face of um, and, you know, continue to figure out a way to kind of sustain what we're doing. Yeah, I guess that's the part that I was just going to add is that, you know, I, I also say we're winning with some caution because you know, we can have these winning moments, but in order to maintain them and sustain them, we have to keep organizing. So it's not like we can declare victory and go home, right? Mm -hmm. We have to kind of stay out there and then fight to maintain what, we, what we've won. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like that is as important as any other part of what I said, because mm -hmm. I, I really do think that the, um, how to say, sometimes there's a, kind of a bit of magical thinking or something that happens, you know, where people are like, well, we won, huzzah. And then they're like, can you believe that the city came back and they tried to build this jail again? Or can you believe that they, you know, tried to jimmy around with the money that we left them to kind of build the police force? It's like, yes, we are in opposition to each other. We are fighting each other right now. And hopefully, if we get beaten, we would come back and continue to demand what we know to be right. But we shouldn't ever be under the impression that the forces we're up against are just gonna be static and that they'll go home if we declare victory, right? Yeah. Well, um, maybe this is, I have like one kind of question that maybe would be the right place to end. Like we, you and I can kind of like exchange thoughts about this, um, which, is, you know, you said, you know, when we have wins where we can move things differently and, 
um, that you know we should thank the people who made it possible. So <laughs> first of all, thank you for all of the work that you have done for uh, you know at least a few decades, if not more, kind of um, doing such deep political education around um, abolition and all of the other things that you do political education around through CPE and critical resistance and all of the different people um, you know that you mentor, train, provide role model for. I mean, I know you know I've learned so much from every sort of interaction that I've had with you, whether it's like, you know, reading something that you wrote or listening to you speak or being able to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so, yeah, just thank you for everything that you have done with other people, but the extraordinary work that you have done um, to make this moment possible. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, I don't know what to say about it. I, I feel like it's just the work that we do because we want to win because we, we want to live better lives, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and likewise, I mean, I feel like all of the interactions I have with you, I feel like I'm learning stuff all the time. And I, I, I feel like that's the beauty of being in movements with people, right? right. Is that we have the opportunity to be you know, learners all the time and to kind yeah. of continually push ourselves to question what we know and why do we know it and to right. not you know, be too, what's the word I'm looking for? not be arrogant, right? With our knowledge, not to yeah. say like, okay, well, I got it all figured out. Let me impart my gems to you now, you know? And I know that in the, the world of social media that seems to be, you know, honored and favored. I, that's not a world that I really spend time in. So I'm making that up. So that might be a right. false statement, <laughs> but that's my impression. That's the story yeah. I made up about social media. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that the kind of humility with which we can um, enter into spaces and understand like, oh, I can learn all this new stuff or I can have my, my own analysis sharpened that we should seize on that at every opportunity that we can take. And so thank you for instance, for inviting me to be in conversation with you because I've learned some good gems today in our conversation. Yeah. Um, okay, so I do have a question um, to kind of close us out and kind of maybe, yeah, it's just like, um, you have been, you know, deep in the fight for PIC abolition for decades and have done a lot of organizing political education and strategic kind of mentoring and guidance from what I can tell of various campaigns around the country. Um, and so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about, um, I don't know what lessons maybe come from being in, in the fight for as long as you have um, and I was hoping as you talked about the lessons, you also might talk a little bit about, um, you know, like we, we, we've talked a lot about tactics and sorry about demands and about um, protest um, and a little bit about organizing generally, but like, you know, like one thing we know from social movements and organizing is that, you know, like strong social movements and strong organizing understands the tools that it has and then, you know, uses its tactics in advance to advance its strategies and there's a range of tactics that people use. So um, yeah, lessons and tactics, um, just saying a little bit about, you know, kind of what you might offer from being involved in this kind of work for a couple of decades. Didn't, didn't give me an easy one there, did you? That's like 15 parts and, <laughs> and, and history. Um, so what I will say about lessons, I'm not sure I'm going to do this very elegantly, as elegantly as you asked the question, but um, in terms of lessons, 
I feel like, um, you know, one of the lessons that is really key to my own development and my own kind of practice, I guess, is this thing I was just talking about in terms of winning, which is, you know, like having a long view and having commitment, right? So having like political commitment to what we're trying to trying to move toward. So if we do that well, if we can be disciplined, if we can be rigorous and flexible, rigorous and flexible both, um, but disciplined maybe above all and kind of stay focused on what it is we're trying to achieve, we're so much better off because there are 8 million things whizzing by us all the time. Lots of people shouting in our ears that we're wrong or that we're fools. And having that kind of, you know, um, dedication to a political vision strikes me as just the number one thing. Even if you're like, I'm not a skilled organizer at all. So like, that's the main thing that I got going for me is I'm like 100% committed to these politics and I figure out what I can do to, um, to move in that direction as much as possible. And I think in the realm of political education, what that allows me to do is to, you know, over time, develop more kind of clarity of purpose and therefore like a bit more clarity of articulation, right? So it's like, if you say something a hundred times, you're probably gonna say it better than if you say it 10 times, right? Maybe not. I mean, there are all kinds of things that I know I've said more than a hundred times and I'm still like, I hear it and I'm like, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> so, you know, maybe not, but, um, but maybe so also, which makes me also think about practice and um, how much of, you know, making a world that we may not have experienced, but we know is right for us also requires us to be able to have room to practice and to take the opportunities to practice. So not to kind of only live in an ideological realm where we roll the ideas, the what ifs around in our brains, but also to test out some of the what ifs and to be willing to take some risks and be willing to fail um, and to try again, even if we fail and to be willing to allow each other that, that space as well. Um, and to understand history, to value our histories. So to our histories as people, but are also our histories as movements so that we, we learn some stuff and we can have a better read on what's happening to us at any given time. And, you know, you know I, I repeat myself a lot. <laughs> so to repeat something that I say a lot, you know, it doesn't mean we're gonna win, right? Like knowing our history well or having a good analysis or any of that doesn't mean we're gonna do the right thing or we're gonna win. But the chances are that we'll learn better lessons if we're knowledgeable about kind of the strands of thought that, that guide us forward and the strands of action that guide us forward. So what that means in terms of tactics, um, I don't know. I mean, my guess is that it has something to do with, you know, what you were saying earlier, which is uh, an openness to understanding a variety of tactics are useful. Um, so, you know, I think protest is a really important tactic, um, but it's one tactic 
And I think it is a tool of escalation. I think if, if we're not trying to escalate something, protest probably isn't our best tactic there. If there's a pressure point, we're really trying to like drive it home, then that's a great tactic. Um, I think integrating cultural work into our movements um, and using that tactically, which means also engaging artists and culture workers throughout and not just, can you draw us a pretty picture at the end um, is important because you know our movements in the States, if you look at our movements compared to movements in lots of other places around the world, they're like pretty drab. You know, they're not that lively. They're not that energetic. Um, and a lot of um, what I find really inspiring when I look outside of the United States is the kind of the role of culture workers in kind of vibrant movements to keep things moving, to have, you know, song be integrated in how we communicate with each other, to have that frame how we go out into the world, all of those kinds of things. So that's, I think, really valuable thing that I've learned over time. Um, and then this isn't exactly tactical, but I think it is a lesson um, that I learned from the just exemplary abolitionist organizer, Rose Braz, um, which is that you have to understand who your enemies are. And you have, to, I mean, and you know, it's a, it's okay to identify them as enemies. I know sometimes I get into movement spaces and people are like, well, that language is too aggressive. And it's like, no, these people are actively trying to do us harm. So identifying them as an enemy is not overly aggressive, I don't think. And it means that we need to understand who we are fixing our lasers on, what we think we can get from them or what we need them to do, and then going for it. And not being able to identify that clearly means that we wind up getting spun out, we wind up getting distracted, we wind up being confused. And so I think, I don't know, that was like all over the place and not particularly clear, I don't think, but that's like the jumble, the, the lesson jumble that came out of my head. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one, hmm. so, I think both in terms of some of the movement work I've been involved with and then a lot of the campaigns that I've studied and kind of paid attention to, um, you know, it's clear that it is, like you were saying before, sustained organizing, base building, deployment of various tactics, whether that's political education and protest um, you know, flooding, um, you know, sending people to a city council hearing on some issue to get, you know, different points of view across or to obstruct something going forward that will bolster the prison industrial complex or whatever. Um, it really seems about like sustaining movements and organizing, using a range of tactics strategically um, I've been thinking a lot about this discipline question because you've raised it recently about the importance of discipline and persistence. Um, and then also, um, and this is, you know, like something I have struggled with, I would say for the last four or five years. And now I'm wondering if I was like basically wrong about this is whether or not we spend enough time organizing and being in conversation in our movements, whether you know it's generally on the left or in abolitionist 
spaces with new people, you know, trying to that base building and expanding part outside of the realm of protest. Um, that's a piece that I have long wondered whether, and you know, and I say that with all humility because I'm a professor and I don't do, you know, I don't do day-to-day -day organizing. Um, and I know that that it takes a kind of work and conversation um, with people in a way that, um, you know, is, it's a lot of labor. It's a lot of really difficult labor and it's not glamorous, it's not funded and so on and so forth. Um, but that's the other piece that seems really um, important. Um, and then I guess the one other thing I would add, building on something you said, and partly like responding to, you know, people here in my local community in Columbus that I'm in conversation with, like um, young people whose excitement is like so thrilling and amazing, like feeling like the revolution is around the corner, right? And like sometimes when you hear people who are alive in the 60s and 70s, they also often talk about, um, you know, feeling that way at that time. Um, and on the one hand, like that feeling that like, you know, that there's some profound win around the corner can be so sustaining. And it's like, a, it comes from, I think a deep place of hope um, that's really beautiful and I wanna celebrate it. And at the same time, I think like one thing that I have learned from abolitionist frameworks and organizing is precisely like the turn, the like the situatedness in the history of the country and how old these systems are, enslavement, colonialism, private property, um, you know, um, marriage. <laughs> uh, you know, these are systems that are so deeply rooted that to imagine any one particular thing is going to, um, you know, overturn them and then we will all be living that much freer, um, you know, it's like, it's a beautiful and very human desire to escape an oppressive system. Um, and I think it's important to kind of, you know, if, if, if we are rooted in history of movements and the world, then I also think we have to understand, you know, it's like that Angela Davis book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Um, you know, I take part of the intervention to be about situating us in the course of time, not just that like it might feel like you're constantly struggling and always having to negotiate these things, but also, um, you know, the work is ongoing and probably, uh, well, definitely will be for our lifetimes. Um, and, um, you know, and that then there's something very sobering, humbling and beautiful about that, even though it's hard. Um, but it seems to me kind of like essential to stay rooted there to prepare ourselves to kind of like really do the kind of work that we need to do to make sure that we and our movements and our communities are sustained and that we don't, um, you know, completely burn out and fizzle out and are incapable of, um, you know, like continuing our, you know, commitment to working on abolition, wealth redistribution, all of the things that, the, you know, we might be committed to. Um, so yeah, I think it's, and maybe it's partly because I feel old these days that I'm kind of like, this is a long, it's a long haul. Um, That's and inspiring though, too, I think, you know, I, I, I think that abolitionists need to be um, incredibly optimistic, right? Mm -hmm. I think if, if we are not optimistic, then we lose the ability to do the thing I was saying, I think is really crucial earlier, which is just to like eyes on the prize, right? And I think that, you know, sometimes this, I don't know if it's like naysayers or if it's, you know, people who are like super enthusiastic and they're ready for the revolution tomorrow or whatever, like, but sometimes I'll be talking with people and they're like, 
oh God, like, how can, how can you go on, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, the, the work is inspiring. And, and the fact that we are part of this like long arc of, um, of people's struggle that's, you know, that is connected in all of the ways that you've lifted up so beautifully to not just kind of fighting imprisonment, but fighting colonialism or fighting, you know, the ravages of capitalism or whatever it might be, the kind of threading together of these movements over this kind of arc of history. I feel like it's, it's incredibly inspiring and, it's, and it totally energizes me. And I think it is something that we can be really proud of. And if you manage to stick around for any period of time, you also can look back and be like, oh, actually stuff's really different, right? So it's like, I think about 20 years ago, you couldn't really say abolition in meetings of people working on issues of imprisonment, let alone policing, definitely not policing. But for people who are working on imprisonment, it was like, please don't say that here. Don't embarrass us. You know, don't talk your wild science fiction here. And now, like, you know, I show up to meetings and people are like, well, I'm an abolitionist. I'm like, all right, let me find out, you know. <laughs> and like I was saying earlier, I don't always exactly understand what that means for them. But that that's a change. And the fact that we can, you know, like fight the construction of these prisons and jails or get people out of prisons and jails or, you know, to start to dismantle uh, police departments that's a big, big change. And that's super inspiring. And, and I feel it makes me feel really optimistic about our, about our chances, even as I'm completely sober about what we're up against. So I don't know, I, I feel like, yeah, freedom is a constant struggle. It should be a constant struggle, right? Yeah. How do you feel about, I feel like that was the perfect place to end. Well, then let's call it a conversation on that. All right. Thank you so much, Rachel, for making time today. Yeah, and thank you for the invitation. I'm really grateful to be here. And thanks again to the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto for having us.